This is Digital Health Today, episode 40. Our goal was to sort of try to crystallize a movement, which was a combination of getting technology in the hands of patients and then by extension clinicians. And then I think it eventually became to, you know, can we now improve the healthcare experience for everybody by supporting all these developers and you know new people coming into the game. Welcome to Digital Health Today, the podcast focused on the leaders, innovators and technologies transforming healthcare today and tomorrow. Find us online at digitalhealthtoday.com. This episode is brought to you by Medible, the app and analytics company for healthcare. Medible invites you to try its Axon solution. Axon makes clinical research easy with its clicks, not code technology. Create your first clinical trial app in just a few minutes. Go to www.medible.com to get a demo today. That's www.medible.com. Welcome back. This is Digital Health Today, the place to be to get the insights of leaders working to make the healthcare of tomorrow available today. I'm your host, Dan Kendall, and this is episode 40. In our previous episodes, we spoke to the health innovator, investor, and entrepreneur Unity Stokes, and we spoke about the important work being done at Startup Health to create an army of health transformers around the world. They focus on four key areas. If you didn't tune into those episodes yet, don't worry. I won't spoil it. You can go back and listen to episode 39, where Unity explains each of them in detail. But I wanted to mention the fourth area because it relates to this podcast. The fourth area in which Startup Health focuses is their promotion engine, their capacity and ability to share the stories of the companies, users, and technologies that their health transformers develop. If you've seen their videos or tuned into their podcasts or attended their Startup Health Festival, you've seen it in action. You know what I'm talking about. And what do you need if you're trying to tell your story to a large global audience? Well, you need a stage. Our guest today went to work in 2006, building the stage where thousands of health innovators have stood and given us a glimpse of what our future health can be. My guest is none other than Matthew Holt, the co-founder of Health 2.0 and the catalyst that has helped thousands of innovators share their stories to many tens of thousands of people all around the world. First, let me fill you in on a few things. I'm continuing the experiment from the previous two episodes, and I'd still like to have your input on the experiment. Like what we did with Unity Stokes, we've broken this conversation with Matthew Holt into two parts. The last two episodes with Unity, numbers 38 and 39, I released on the same day. For these two episodes with Matthew, I'm going to release them one day apart, so you can download episode 40 on Thursday, the 31st of August, and then episode 41, the second part of the conversation, on Friday, the 1st of September. Let me know what you think. Is this a good format? Is it too long? Is it too short? Would you prefer one long podcast, or do you like having it delivered in shorter segments? Are there certain questions you'd like to have put to each of these thought leaders? I don't know. We're experimenting, and I'd love to know what you think. Email me at dan at digitalhealthtoday.com and tell me what's on your mind. If you've got great things to say, you know I'd love to have you write a review. Jump on digitalhealthtoday.com forward slash review and see how to give a star rating on iTunes. If you don't have great things to say, then yes, please email me. I really do want to hear what you have to say, both the good and the bad, but I can't respond to posts on iTunes, and I really want to make sure that I'm hitting the mark for you and our digital health community. Is there someone you think I should talk to, a topic you want me to cover? Just let me know. Or anything else that will help make this podcast and platform out of this world? I want to hear from you. Now let's talk about our guest, Matthew Holt. He's the co-founder of Health 2.0, which he founded in 2006 with Indu Sabaya. I've known Matthew for several years. I've spent time with him at Health 2.0 conferences and bars nearby in the U.S. and in Europe. But until I had this discussion with him, I didn't really have an appreciation of the background that eventually led to the creation of the Health 2.0 series of conferences. 
In my mind, there's absolutely no question that these events have been a tremendous catalyst in accelerating the creation and adoption of new health technologies. What I also didn't know is that Matthew isn't only a very talented researcher, but he also has first-hand experience driving a Silicon Valley startup. Unfortunately, it was one that was not successful commercially, but surely it was successful in shaping his perspective and understanding of what it takes to be successful, driving new innovations into the healthcare sector. We cover all this in episode 40. In episode 41, which we'll release on Friday, the 1st of September, we dive into the controversy about the term digital health and Matthew's preferred term, smack health. I really don't know about that. He'll tell us what it all means and discuss the merits of that term. And since he's so passionate about it, we're also going to try the new name on for size. So the next episode of this podcast will be the Smack Health Today podcast. Yeah, I'll just leave that there for a second. Let's see how that pans out. As always, grab the show notes online at digitalhealthtoday.com forward slash 40. And for the next episode at digitalhealthtoday.com forward slash 41. Now, without further ado, here's our guest, Matthew Holt. Matthew, thanks for joining me. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Dan. Pleasure to be here. Matthew, listen, you're probably one of the best known people in the health tech industry. Whenever I'm on LinkedIn and I try to connect with someone or someone has sent an invitation to me, you come up almost every time as a, a common thread in our in our networks. You lead conferences all around the globe and you speak about a lot of different companies, but we don't often get a chance to hear much about your past and how you decided to make this impact in Health 2.0. Can you give me a little bit of a snapshot about your background and how you got to San Francisco and how you got involved in the healthcare industry? Sure. Clearly, clearly I've been spending far too much time. Thanks, Dan. I've been spending far too much time on LinkedIn. Should I dial that down? <laughs> um, so, you know, I have a, uh, you know, I don't think I have a particularly remarkable story. I um, did with, you know, like you, where, where you're living now, I was uh, brought up in the UK. I lived there and went to college there at Cambridge, did political science. I came out, I worked in the city of London, which was where everyone worked in the 80s. I was particularly unskilled at what I was doing and kept on getting fired from various roles in sort of futures trading and options and that kind of stuff. Um, and then uh, I decided that it was probably a good idea because I couldn't think of anything else to do to go back to college. I'd been to the States on vacation a couple of times and I really loved San Francisco. So I thought, well, perhaps I can find some place where I can go to college near there for a year. So I got a place at Stanford and through a long random series of events was doing a master's degree in political science, which turned into doing a bunch of research on the Japanese healthcare system. And the guy who had the, the money to fund that kept me around for a couple of years. But, you know, I also, while I was there, picked up another degree in health services research and picked up, did a bunch of work, not so much on the Japanese healthcare system, more on the American healthcare system and doing comparisons back and forth. So I was kind of uh, by, you know, I guess by the early 90s, I was kind of a graduate student policy wonk doing healthcare stuff. And then uh, then at some point, you had to leave the, uh, the, 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 the academy and uh, go out in the real world. And that was very unpleasant. But eventually I got there and um, I got a job with a, with a research consulting company, which is a nonprofit, but essentially was just like another consulting company called Institute for the Future. What year is this which, now, Matthew? Uh, we're now, so I, I come to the States in late 89, and this is now 93 that I have this job at, uh, at Institute for the Future doing, you know, the future of healthcare. So this is back sort of pre-Clinton plan. So this is uh, future of managed, Clinton's just been elected, they're talking about the Clinton plan. This Got is it. the future of managed care and the future of um future of sort of how healthcare is going to be organized and all that kind of stuff, all the stuff we're still talking about, basically. Um, healthcare at this stage is, you know, 13% of the GDP, 40 million Americans are uninsured. 
Um, and you know, things are about things are likely to well, they, they won't fall things are likely to get worse, although they got better for a little bit during the, the Clinton boom. Um, so personally, I'm there doing, you know, sort of research on the, the evolution of the healthcare system. Um, and at the same time, Institute for the Future had a pretty big technology practice looking at the future of technology, sort of Silicon Valley based. Um, so uh, there was a teeny project that somebody had started and nobody really wanted to give any love to, which was looking at both of those together which is the future of uh, health IT. Um, and that was funded by, it was called the Bluebells Project. It was funded by a bunch of Blue Cross program, Blue, Blue Cross plans and some, uh, some of the Arbox, some of the Bell operating companies. And so I kind of took that over. And at the same time as that was going on, a bunch of the people at the IFTF who were researching into the internet and was using the very first Mosaic browsers and the first sort of use of the World Wide Web. So this is right, late 93, early 94. Um, started showing me some of that stuff, and, and uh, somehow that all kind of came together. Um, so that took us through to, literally to the end of '99. Then I decided I should get rich like everybody else in Silicon Valley, so I joined a startup. Spent 2000 and 2001 in the startup doing personal health records and, and data analytics. Um, that thing died an ugly death at the end of 2001, um, and then I actually vanished for a couple of years. I, I uh, for most most of 2002, I wasn't doing. I did a bit of consulting, but not too much work. And in 2003, I came. I, I literally was on the beach in in Asia, and I, in uh, mid 2003, I came back, um, having been literally all over Asia, sort of waiting out the recession, <laughs> the dot com bust, as it were. Yeah, I didn't realize that you'd actually been part of a startup, Matthew. Yeah, uh, I I try hard to forget that. Um, I'm still waiting for my uh, my last six months paycheck. <laughs> I'm still, I'm still waiting. I do have a very, very funny email somewhere in some old email system from Aetna saying that even though our our tool, they loved our tool, they wanted it, it was great, it's fantastic. They literally couldn't do anything for two years till they sorted out all this other stuff, and could we wait? <laughs> and that was, that's not the greatest email to get when you're a startup sort of running out of money. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, but not uncommon, anyway. unfortunately. At least you, at least they were up front and they actually knew that it was going to be two years. A lot of people say, oh, yeah, just, you know, three months, three months, three months. And then suddenly two years later, you say, wait a minute, well, you've been telling me three months for two years. Honestly, Dan, a problem was that we got really early on, we showed a demo to, to a company. So it's it, how things changed so quickly. So basically what happened was that Healthy on WebMD, for those of you with long memories, merged in 1999, um, and they'd been both kicking around. Healthy on had been public for a little while. WebMD, anything ever went public, and they had Microsoft behind them. And they merged in 99, and and everyone in healthcare, the traditional healthcare IT players, were completely panicked, and they thought they were actually going to be taken apart by this company that was going to do the you know do electronic transactions on the internet and have direct access to consumers, and there was fair amount of panic and most many of the CEOs started making broad you know broad proclamations about how they were going to allow access to medical records or health records to all of their consumers on the internet immediately and uh, one of the companies that did that was a company called First Health which was got later got swallowed up by Coventry and I think is now part of Aetna um, anyway uh, but in those days their CEO basically basically said yes we will give all of our uh, members access to you know their own records on the internet and of course you know the cio was like falling off his chair going what is this guy talking about and we had a tool which basically was that was like a sort of way that you could put claims data and information to a nice little personal health record on the internet there are about 
30 or 40 companies to have one, but we had quite a cool one. And so we met them. We sold it to them for a decent chunk of change. I mean, a couple of million bucks. Um, and then we waited for them to put it up and we waited and waited and waited. Um, and we sold one more to a PVM called Advanced PCS. And we just assumed at that point, well, we're going to sell 20 of these things. Every health plan is going to buy one. <laughs> and we waited and waited and waited. And meanwhile, uh, the sort of dot-com bust happened. Uh, the health field and WebMD threat kind of fell apart. And all the health plans went back to doing what they were doing, most of which was many of which like it and noticed that what they've been doing in the late uh, 1990s, early 2000s was hurting their bottom line. They were going to get, going to go back to being a, an insurance company. Um, which is what Aetna and, and, and United and some several of the others actually did. And they slowed down all their technology initiatives and went back to trying to figure out how to make money by charging their uh, consumers, their consumers and employers more, which is what they did in the late, uh, in the early 2000s. That's why healthcare premiums started r- rising back up. Anyway, um, and in the meantime, a bunch of little companies like ours, which were hoping to sell a bunch more of our cool tools, just got, you know, ran out of money. <laughs> yep. So. That's the fun thing of being a startup. It's actually not that much fun. So on a personal note, we're going to make a transition, I think, from that career experience. But on a personal note, during that period, I imagine somewhere along the line, you met your wife, who I take it is American, and you've had a couple of children along the way, right? Uh, yeah, that happened quite a bit later. I, uh, I got married in 2000. I just had my 10th anniversary this weekend. So I just got married in 2007, and the children arrived in this decade. But, uh, right. yeah. So we've switched countries a little bit. So have you actually taken on American citizenship? Uh, yeah, I, I became American citizen. It's actually quite a funny story because I've been a permanent resident for about five years. I'd won the green card lottery in the 90s, last year the Brits could, could enter. So I'd been at college. College doesn't count towards your immigration status. So you only really start, the clock starts ticking after you get out and still get a job. So that was like 93 for me. And on uh, November the 8th, whatever the morning was, or 9th of 2000, after the uh, uh, Bush Gore Florida thing, my Chinese housekeeper came in on the morning and uh, uh, to, to, to start, you know, doing my, doing my, doing my apartment. I was still in bed. You know, he wanted to know why I was still in bed. And I said, oh, I was up late watching the election. And uh, he asked me who I voted for. And we, did, we kind of spoke pidgin English, Chinese back and forth to each other. And he asked me if I voted for Bush or Gore. See, I said, I like Bill Clinton. And I showed him my British passport. And he, the next week, he came back in with a citizenship form and said, you better uh, – <laughs> and he gave it to me. <laughs> and uh, you know, included the 50 questions they ask you. And he couldn't even speak English. So the, how the hell he answered the 50 questions, I don't know. Actually, he, he learned them off by rote. I asked him some of the questions later. But I thought, well, if this guy can become a citizen, I probably really should get my act together. So I became a citizen in, in 02. But I, I'd lived in the U.S. since 89 by this stage. So I've already been here for 13 years, and I'm, I'm, I'm not heading home anytime soon. You may like that weird country over there, but I, I think it's a bit strange. <laughs> <laughs> well, I did become a citizen much for the same reason, because I wanted to have the opportunity to vote. I knew I was going to be there for a long time. And I thought, well, this is important, especially having children in the UK. I thought I need to be able to weigh in on some of the politicians that are making decisions that are affecting me and my family. So we can have a little quiz back and forth about some of the things you probably know about American history that I've forgotten and some of the things maybe about British history that I've stumped a few people at dinner conversations, the things I had to answer on that that test to become a citizen in the UK or subject of the Queen, I should say. So, <laughs> yeah, well, the, 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 yeah it's, it's the recent British history which got very ugly. Unfortunately, your vote didn't counteract my dad's vote on Brexit. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, that's 
some fun games going on there. My, my kids uh, don't think I know what I'm talking about because I seem to have predicted a lot of uh, elections incorrectly recently. So um, anyway, that's <laughs> a, a, I'm sure as a political science uh, major, I'm sure we got have an interesting conversation about that. Let's save that for another Health 2.0 meeting at the bar. So lead us up to the point where you actually had the idea to start Health 2.0. I mean, you were, you've worked for companies, you've, worked, you've done a startup. So, so I'm, I'm back, I'm back sort of, you know, I'm back uh, uh, sitting, sitting around and, and doing primarily consulting work for technology companies. So I, you know, I, I'm one of those ubiquitous independent consultants bumping around. Uh, most of the companies I'm working for are tech companies looking at healthcare, people like Philips and Cisco, I did a bit of work for Microsoft, those kinds of people. Um, I also did a little bit of uh, um, independent uh, writing and what have you. But I also, the thing that's probably most remarkable is that, is that I started when I came back in. I'd actually run a, one of the, well, I was one of the first. So I'd run a travel blog when I was you know, out and about in 2002, 2003, and basically just posting my photos. I had one of those first electric uh, you know, first like uh, digital cameras and was posting photos of friends and that kind of stuff of where I was in Thailand or Vietnam or, you know, which monument I was at or which bar I was drunk in. And what happened was when I came back, I thought, well, you know, um, th these blogs, especially the political blogs like Insta Pundit and Daily Coast were just getting off the ground. I mean, literally just getting off the ground, just getting their first use users. And I thought, well, you know, I want, somebody should be doing this for healthcare because I know a fair amount man about healthcare and nobody was and i actually went to the url you know the registrar site to get healthcare blog and somebody had it somebody still has it and they keep, they keep trying to sell it to me now and again so that was busy but the healthcare blog was available so i so i started the healthcare blog um and i started a site on blogger and started writing you know this is back in august 2003 started writing little pieces you know partly just to sort of re-educate myself because i've been away for a year i've been doing very focused work on uh you know personal health records for the for the startup and i've been before that i've been a generalist right looking doing all kinds of healthcare policy politics business technology regulation across the board in healthcare and that's what i find the most fun so basically i just, just started writing and it and it was uh, an interesting time, you know, we had Medicare Modernization Act coming up. We had the early underpinnings of you knew that there was the problem was not going to go away and was going to come back um, regarding the overall health reform issue. You know, so this is the well pre Obamacare, but all the problems that had been around in the early 90s were back and they were worse. So anyway, so there I'm running the healthcare blog. The other thing I'm doing is that you recall I'd done all that work on healthcare and the internet in the in the 90s at Institute for the Future, mm -hmm. and there'd been this uh, dot com boom, and there'd been a bunch of little health tech companies that had made it, unlike my little startup, that had made it and gone public, and they'd all gone bust. But you know, there was a little bit of activity spe specifically aimed at consumers online, not so much stuff for uh, clinicians, especially on the internet. There was there was the development of sort of old style electronic medical records was continuing at that point slowly. Um, so what happened, you know, next is that in 2004, we had a seminal event in Silicon Valley, which is that Google went public. So, you know, the sort of the, the morass and the, the decay of the 2001 crash through 2003 period kind of everyone forgot about that because all of a sudden now we have something that made money again. And all that money, not only from sort of, you know, the venture capitalists that made money off Google, but all the other companies that started 
doing well around that time and now are the ones we know about Facebook and Amazon and Netflix, et cetera, et cetera. All of that money started coming back and a little bit of it started trickling back into healthcare. So although the big boom in healthcare um, venture funding has been largely since 2010, there was a decent amount of relatively well-funded companies in the 10 to 20, 30, 40 million range um, from about 2006 onwards. People like uh, Samo and patients like me and there was a company called Revolution Health funded by Steve Case, which had a couple hundred million put in. So, you know, there, there was a little bit of activity in terms of Internet and healthcare. Um, and I was covering a lot of that in my blog as well. So I was covering general stuff. but I was covering that. I was writing some articles about that. And it, basically in 2006, um, I started calling it or started you know, copying the term Web 2.0 from uh, Tim O'Reilly. So I started calling it Health 2.0. Uh, anyway, so, and there are a few other people. You started, you started calling what health 2.0? Your, uh, the, the topics what, you covered so in your it, blog? You know, it was new companies online. It was what we now call, what I now call Smack Health, which is. Oh, we're going to get onto that. Oh no, we're going to get onto Smack. Don't worry. Basically online companies, uh, working either with patients or between patients and clinicians. So people like Daily Strength. Patients like me, there were a bunch of search engines uh, out there at the time, which were aimed just at healthcare Healthline, which is still around uh, um, uh, company called Medrio, which got Medrio, I think its name was, which got bought by Microsoft. So there are a bunch, bunch of uh, little companies and some companies which are just starting to build their own tools for consumers. This is pre-iPhone. So some of this stuff is on the Palm Trio, but most of it's just on the web. So... What, what was happening, though, is that, you know, these, these small, there weren't that many. There were maybe 30, 40 companies, 50 companies at that time. Um, and so basically a number of them said, hey, no one's having a meeting for us to put together. Uh, you know, no one's putting us together. No one's talking about us other than you. So right at that time at a, at a thing called Bar Camp, which is kind of a predecessor of Meetup, I met Indu, Indu Subaya, my, my business partner for the last 11 years, and basically said to her, you know, we, we had a conversation. She said, well, you know, someone's, if no one's having a, a meeting, you should put it on. And then we had vague plans for her to do another type of meeting about biotech or whatever else. But in the end, we we, we started working together and put on the Health 2.0 conference. And we announced, we started inviting people and we announced it, I think, in April 2007. And the conference was in September. And, you know, what happened then is it was, it was just you know, given how little we knew, it was a remarkable success. You know, we ended up having uh, a waiting list of people. We had more than 450 people came to the conference, you know, and all of a sudden we're, we're in business running a conference. So that's really how it started. That's really great. I mean, 450 for the first year of a conference, especially in 2007, and people need to remember, I mean, 2007, Health 2.0, Digital Health, Smack Health, whatever you want to call it, it wasn't really even being thought of as much as we're talking about it today. I mean, this was the year that the iPhone was even released, much less the App Store being opened up for developers. So, you know, we thought uh, really cool phones were the Motorola Razors and things like that. It's, it's worth mentioning, Dan, that part of the reason we we uh, were, were lucky uh, and successful, you know, which is the same, those two things were obviously correlated, um, was that both Google and Microsoft were thinking of doing something. And we had them both come and talk about it. Um, unfortunately, neither of them had released it by that stage. Microsoft released something about six weeks later, and Google released something the next the next year. But the point was, people came to see them, and they saw all this other stuff. They saw patients like me, and they saw Sermo, and they saw a bunch of 
you know, new tools. And they thought, wow, that's really, you know, there's remarkable stuff going on. And I think that really was why that first meeting was such like a, an amazing, amazing buzz. And people really wanted to come back. And we had another meeting, you know, less than six months later. And by the next year, 2008, we'd grown and had nearly a thousand people come, even though the world was falling apart right at the time we had the meeting. We'll dive back into our discussion in just a moment, but I wanted to take a quick second to tell you about this episode's sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Medible, the app and analytics company for healthcare. You may have heard my interview with Medible CEO, Dr. Michelle Longmire in episode 29. Medible is a fast growing company that was just named by the San Francisco Chronicle as a startup to watch. There's a lot of buzz about this company because Medible combines deep healthcare knowledge with cutting edge Silicon Valley technology. Its solutions are disrupting the $30 billion clinical trial outsourcing market. $30 billion, that's a market ready for disruption. It's no secret that clinical trials continue to grow more complex, and patient recruitment and retention are a major challenge to sponsors. Today's protocols are more demanding than ever, and frequent travel to clinical sites often discourages patients from long-term participation in studies. Did you know that 25% of patients drop out before study completion? In many studies, 50% or more visits could be relocated to a patient's home. For decades, the clinical trials industry has been saddled by legacy technology and workflow inefficiencies. Medible puts patients first and uses mobile tools to bring anywhere, anytime technology to improve recruiting and patient retention. Medible solutions include functionality that replaces e-source, e-consent, and EDC data entry into a study. And they can integrate with EMR, IRT, wearables, and other devices. Solutions that are powered by Medible are HIPAA compliant, auditable, and interoperable right out of the box. The Medible platform serves as the hub for the entire patient record with data spanning all healthcare systems. If you're interested in building clinical apps that patients love and that bridge the gap between the clinic to the app store, check out Medible's Axon. It's easy, it's HIPAA compliant, and it's supported by a robust platform. Give it a try and create your first clinical trial app in just a few minutes. It's true. Go to www.medible.com to schedule a demo. Now let's jump back to the conversation. So you, you sort of fell into organizing these conferences and now it's expanded massively. And we'll talk about some of the things that are happening around the world. It seems like every other week I find you uh, on Twitter on another in another country speaking or hosting or, uh, or, or presenting something. So obviously a lot of success there, but I think it's really key that you've come to this not as a conference organizer or somebody who's trying to create uh, events, but you've really come to it as a student of the game, as a student of uh, the the economics and the policies that are managing or controlling the delivery of healthcare. And you've obviously been a world traveler. You've seen this delivered in a variety of, of spaces. So what was your vision, yours and Indu's vision when you started to have this conference, you didn't just, I imagine, you didn't just want to say, well, okay, we'll just become a conference organizer now. We'll just have these events. There's a purpose. There's a mission behind that. Did you did you crystallize that? And can you share it with us? I think our goal was to sort of try to crystallize a movement, which was a combination of getting technology in the hands of patients and then, by extension, clinicians, and then... I think it eventually became to, you know, can we now improve the healthcare experience for everybody by supporting all these developers and, you know, new people coming into the game? So, uh, you know, we, um, you know, India has this definition of Health 2.0, which is it's, it should be technology that's adaptable. It, health, health 2.0 should focus on the user experience and it should also use data to help drive decisions. And it's kind of like the I know it when I see it. 
Um, we're trying, we, you know, we're trying to get these types of technologies, the people who are supporting them, the people who want them, uh, the patients who benefit from them, the clinicians who be able to, to use it. We're trying to sort of get a movement of those, of, that, of those types of people around and, you know, push the edges of what can be show, can be done. Um, and see, you know, and see various, uh, see various, you know, uh, 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 different examples of how things have been changed because of the, uh, the, you know, the new kinds of things that we're showing, but always to show the new stuff. So that's, I think, been, been our mantra. So, you know, it, it's not quite an evangelical movement, but it's certainly a, a, a goal of how can we influence the overall system by making sure this new stuff gets a showcase and place to be adopted. And of course, it's not just us now, and a lot of other people are, uh, are pursuing that. There's a lot of people on the you know, incubator side, the venture side, um, there are m- many other conferences, et cetera. But I think you know, we sort of lay claim to being the first people to really push that as, uh, ahead as far as we could and take it, as you mentioned, to, to, to other countries as well. Yeah, I've always really enjoyed your conferences. I've been able to attend several of yours that you've held in Europe. I know uh, you held it in London one year, which you know, is uh, an expensive destination, but also I think holding a meeting in London in November uh, can often be a bit cold and wet. So I like the move that you've made <laughs> to have it in Barcelona in May, which is a great time of year. And Barcelona, with obviously the world's thinking about them with the recent events that's happened there, but a beautiful city and and a, a really thriving entrepreneurial culture and a big push, a big focus on, I'm going to call it digital health. I know we're going to, we're going to come on to that, that, that difference in, <laughs> in moniker in, in a few minutes here, but I know you've got a lot of events around the world. I want to talk about what some of those events are where people who are listening can plug in. But I also want to talk about what's happened with the recent change. So take us first around yeah. the world, and then let's talk about the change with uh, with HEMS getting involved. So a couple of things. So so the, the first thing is that we've we've had uh, usually three to four events each year in the U.S. We have a large event, our biggest event, which is the, you know, the, the continuation of that original first event is our fall conference happens uh, now in Santa Clara, has a couple of thousand people. It's October the 1st to the 4th. It lasts basically four days of peace, love, music, and health technology. Um, and we, we we continue to, you know, spend a lot of time and effort. That one's because it's coming up in six weeks. is obviously very top of mind for us. Um, we have some smaller events in the U.S. We, we, we run a uh, um, design and developer conference called HX Refactor with our friends at MadPow in Boston in the spring. We run a, uh, an event during JP Morgan Week, one of the satellite events there. It's called Winter Tech, which is mostly about investing in health technology. Um, we're running a new event this year on October the 24th called Technology for Precision Health, which is obviously there's a lot of fuss around precision medicine and precision health, and there are a lot of tools and technologies being built for that. So that's an exciting event that we, we have coming up on one-day event in San Francisco for those of you who care about the omics, genomics, proteomics, tools around that, precision health, and all, and all that stuff. So that's just in the U.S. Then around the world, we've had uh, the, the longest, most established one, as you mentioned, Dan, the one that our friend Pascal Lardier uh, runs with us uh, in Europe. We've been there. I think we're now coming up to year eight. This will be, it's in, been in Barcelona the last few years, found its home there in Barcelona. Um, and we've, for three years, or coming up for our third year, been running conferences in Japan with our colleagues from Medpeer. So we have Health Diplomat Tokyo. It's a well-established conference. We've been to a number of other places um, coming back and forth. Um, and this year in November, November 10th, we'll be in India, in Hyderabad. Um, we've been in India before, uh, took a couple of years off, but are back there again this year. And uh, that's, the, that's the current state of play. We have, um, we're going to be do, working with our, well, now I can move on to the, the HIMSS Association. Um, 
Hims acquired Hims, the big, the big uh, North, uh, North American trade show for Health IT that everyone knows, and the association that runs that and runs lots of other stuff. Acquired our conference business back in April this year, so very recently, um, and we're going to be doing a little bit of, of work with them. We're going to be taking uh, a day of the of a Middle East conference they're doing in November the twelfth and thirteenth, where we'll be presenting Health Diplomat. We'll be presenting some tracks, a track on the uh, the, the day there. Um, and then we're actually for next year in Barcelona, which is the 26th through 8th of May, we're actually going to co-locate. It won't be the won't be the same conference. There'll be Hims Europe and there'll be Health to Europe, but they'll be co-located at the same time um, in uh, in Sitges, which is just outside Barcelona. Wait a minute. I just want to go back to that because that sounds like news to me here. So you're saying in May 2018, the Hims and Health to conference are going to be co-located? They'll be co-located and ah. essentially one, one, end of the, one end of the hall will be uh, – uh, us and the other end of the hall will be them. <laughs> so um, we think you know they'll it, it, be pretty sep. They'll be pretty separate conferences. There may be a joint keynote or two, and there may be some joint exhibit hall. But uh, they may, they, those also may be split up. We're still working on that. Do we know what hymns? Which hymns conference is actually being moved to Barcelona? Is this a new hymns conference, or is this something else that they would normally uh, move around? I think it's just the standard, standard hymns Europe conference. The one that was in that there's some changes going on, but the one that was in Malta last year. Gotcha. Uh, I think it was called E-Health, E-Health Week. Week. Yeah. That's the end of episode 40 with Matthew Holt, but don't worry, he's coming back in less than 24 hours to join us for episode 41 and part two of the discussion. Be sure to join us for his passionate explanation of why we should rebrand digital health as Smack Health. See what you think of our temporary rebrand of the podcast tomorrow as well. Believe me, it's going to be temporary. Check out all the links to the things we discussed by visiting digitalhealthtoday.com forward slash 40. While you're there, take a minute to subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcast apps. Be sure to also check out medable.com, M-E-D-A-B-L-E, medable.com, and sign up for a demo of Axon. You'll be surprised at how fast you can create your first clinical trial app. That's all for me for now. Until next time, keep on innovating.